0: Let's hack the process together. Hi, welcome back to Hack the Process. And thank you again for all of those subscriptions and great comments that you've been leaving on iTunes. Keep them coming. They really keep me motivated, and they do help people find the show. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Vinay Patankar. He's the CEO of Process Street, an online service that helps businesses set up intuitive training programs for tasks and processes using checklist-based workflows that can be sequenced, shared, and reproduced in parallel. Vinay tells us how Process Street works, and shares how the lessons he's learned from earlier experiences starting companies helped guide him. He'll tell us about launching his company through AngelPad, finding his co-founder in a hostel in Buenos Aires, and how failing to do enough user testing might have brought down his last company. Today we're talking to Vinay Patanka, and he is the CEO of Process Street. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? Doing great, doing great. Could you tell the, the listeners a little bit about what you've been doing and what Process Street is?
1: Yeah, for sure. Process Street is a simple way for companies and teams to manage their processes and workflows. We kind of took the idea of a lot of companies would keep their processes in a lot of different kind of disparate places on documentation in kind of workflow software and project management tools, and there was kind of like all this different stuff going on everywhere. And we thought there should be a central place for people to kind of store and manage and track all their processes. And so what we've kind of done is we've combined like a repository for documenting your processes with like an enterprise grade workflow product, but kind of wrapped around a very intuitive interface and that's process treatment. We can handle all your documentation, but we can also handle more powerful automated workflows, but everything's in one place. It's not segmented across all these different apps. And we kind of, you don't need to have gone to school and done an MBA in like process management and design to kind of figure out how to use it, right? It's intuitive for everybody. We use simple concepts like checklists and assignments and due dates, and it's all pretty kind of intuitive to understand. And it being a a SaaS product, it's accessible to small businesses as well, not just the kind of enterprises, which is where a lot of the workflow products traditionally kind of live.
0: I think software as a service is becoming something small businesses are starting to expect. Can you tell me a little bit about what inspired you to focus in on this particular aspect of of process management?
1: It was basically me just scratching my own itch initially and basically trying to solve like one workflow. And for me at the time, that was around managing media buying campaigns on ad networks. So that was like my last company and that was a workflow that I had that was an issue around tracking all the different campaigns that were running across different networks. Being it was such kind of like, it was all this kind of unique kind of custom data, I want to say, like, it's not something that anybody had really built like a pre-built solution for and probably ever would because it was always ever-changing kind of custom data that needed essentially a customizable workflow, if that kind of makes sense but i wanted something that was very simple so i had a distributed team and i had a lot of people that were doing pretty kind of low level work just like report generation or image editing or like for for banners and stuff like that and i wanted something that was very easy intuitive for them to understand uh, something that i wouldn't need to train them on and wouldn't add like more complexity to the process and so that was when i started searching for you know why can't i just have something that's like okay this is what you need to do to deploy a media campaign you need to first log into this account and then you need to set up the campaigns these use these kind of keywords, these banners, they're located in this folder, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of like how you would build out a process document, right? But then I actually wanted visibility that that was being done every time and who was doing it and when it was being done. And then there was an audit trail on it. And then if there was things going wrong, it would get highlighted and picked up in the process and actioned on and that'll be tracked, et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of like, just give me this checklist, right? Like This is this thing. Step one, set up the, you know, log into the media account, to do blah, blah, blah. And then I, why can't I just track that that's being done every time? It just seemed like such a simple concept to me. And that's kind of where it began is me, me just looking for a product that did that and it didn't exist. And then that was kind of the initial idea. So we went about, I went about for about six months looking for a co-founder. It was actually, I'd already gone through a failed startup before. And so I was pretty cautious about finding the right co-founder. And when we found one, we kind of built it with me as the initial customer. And then just started kind of getting people onto the platform and, and building it out from there. And it started with like the, the idea of kind of this really simple checklist-based workflow. And where that's taken the company to now is that it's basically a, a checklist-based workflow is what we call a micro workflow, which means it's a workflow that basically doesn't have much complexity to it. Like it's linear, it doesn't have decisions, it doesn't have rules, it doesn't have Parallel tasks going on, et cetera, et cetera. It's a pretty kind of straightforward workflow, and what that kind of ended up doing was was actually building this. I don't even know what the right word for it is, but it, almost like a training platform for people to understand workflows. If you run a small business and you're you're a baker, and now you run a bakery, you've never gone to business school. You don't understand what a flow diagram is, or a process,es or a workflow is. Like intuitively, intuitively though, you understand what a checklist is. It's easy to understand the kind of basics of, oh, this is, I need to make a, pro- a checklist for how to bake a cake. And then every time I bake the cake, I run the checklist. Like it's a very simple concept to understand, but then we can start to put in all these other things like, oh, well after we've run 10 cakes, notify the supplier that the cakes have been cooked and then get the supplier to order more supplies. Or after the cake is cooked, automatically generate the invoice to the customer and send the cake with the address and packaging and automatically update like the inventory system and collect the money, right? Like, so instead of it just being a, a, a simple checklist on how to bake a cake, now we can actually take that checklist and start to automate the things around it so that automatically the checklist created and gets assigned to the customer when the order comes in and then the customer gets notified once the, the cake has been baked and checked off. But users don't need to understand that initially. They can just come in with the kind of basic let's bake a cake checklist. And then slowly as they learn the app, they can kind of plug in more powerful aspects. Whereas if you look at like more traditional workflow management software, someone would land on this like dashboard and the let's bake a cake kind of concept would be this tiny task in the middle of this really kind of complex workflow and generally just scares the shit out of someone who... It doesn't come from that background right? that is the
0: sort of thing i was thinking of when when i saw process street one of the first things i thought was franchise because this seems like like such a tool for putting together the kind of procedure manuals that people sell as huge expensive franchises it just breaks everything down but you're you're you bring up a, an interesting point about the decision tree process because there's that uh, that intelligence that goes into making a choice between doing this or that and knowing what context comes up does uh, how, how flexible is process street around that kind of thing? Or is that something that's planned?
1: It's something that we know we need to tackle and we, we haven't completely designed it yet, but it's something that we're very scared of over-designing. If that makes sense. We kind of need to make a decision on the product and then also in the pricing and the tiering and all of that around it as to, do we want to build a hundred percent of the functionality of SAP workflow. Or give it that like really, you know, fine grained buttons, like dials for every single thing that you can do in the app? Or do we want to kind of take the 20% of the functionality that we think will cover the 80% of the use cases and kind of really wrap that in a very simple to easy understand way? We can still kind of cover most users' use cases and and not overcomplicate the app. But maybe we won't be perfect for the really, really complex kind of detailed use cases, but we can still kind of cover the majority, right? And so we need to we need to make sure that we're not just really overcomplicating the app kind of by building out all the all the rules and the logic. And so I can kind of give you some some of the things that we have already thought of that starts to enable some of this stuff. Inside a checklist right now, you can basically assign somebody to like the whole checklist and say, okay, this person is responsible for baking the cake, right? And then, but in the future, we'll be able to kind of break down tasks and say, you know, one person has to make the mix and one person has to bake it and one person has to do the icing. So you can kind of break down the tasks that way and then kind of assign them to different people. You can enforce order. So you can say this cake has to be baked in this order. And then you can also say that individuals, only the icing chef can complete the icing cake task, which kind of... Creates an an approval flow process because you have these tasks that are uh, you know a manager has to do this particular task or this like the finance team has to approve this invoice.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see how that could add a lot of power. But one of the things that I was really impressed by when you were just talking about how you were making the choices was this eighty twenty concept that you brought up, where you were talking about how you want to structure the business and what direction you want to take
1: it in. Absolutely. If you really go straight after building like this really heavy customers like really heavy complexity and customization options you kind of can run the risk of a needing to spend a lot of resources just educating and hand-holding customers onto the product which is not necessarily a bad thing depending on your business but b getting kind of pulled by big customers in certain directions to kind of build a lot of the functionality that they need and you're then kind of, you have to increase your price significantly because you're selling these much more highly customized solutions. But when you're looking at, at workflows as like a, a product category, every company's workflow is like very different and, and, and very customized. And so if you get into the habit of doing, like customizing the workflow specifically for customers, then you kind of can get into this really dangerous habit of just becoming almost like a custom dev shop, right? and your product becomes really difficult to reuse in other environments. And so we've been more focused on kind of building something that works for most people, but not everybody, and something that's more innately intuitive to understand. Because if we start with that as our kind of core development objectives, we can in the future continue to build more advanced functionality and segmented off essentially products such as an enterprise plan, which has its own dedicated sales team and success team and, and the resources that are needed to basically take care of those larger customers. But if we do that two or three years out, once we've already tested and iterated the core product many, 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 many times, the core user experience for those enterprise users is going to be much better anyway in three years than if we just start kind of building for what they want or for what a few people want initially versus covering what we can kind of tell the masses want or you know, thousands and thousands of people want, based on like the data that we're getting back from those from those users, right? I could see something like that also
0: coming from aftermarket integrations, where uh, where you open things up in such a way that people could do sub development and and build on your platform.
1: Yeah, well, the product's built API first, so everything's running around APIs. So it's very difficult to actually come in and kind of build whatever you. that's uh, very very easy to come in and build whatever you want on the platform. We just haven't fully documented and opened up kind of documentation for the API, but we work with a number of customers like directly and they can kind of build off the API now. And that's something that we definitely want to want to focus on opening up soon. Yeah, I think that that sounds like it could optimize the, the,
0: the decision making process. And I, I like the way that you're thinking toward trying to get the large volume of people who have, uh, have the, the general problems, get their problems addressed first, and then bring in the solutions that could potentially address more targeted, higher, higher uh, value customers.
1: Yeah, it's like, it's not even as like the product from, from very early days, a lot of the time will address the problems, but, or at least like the core problems, but making it intuitive and a pleasant experience and helping people understand that the product solves their problems is like a lot of the challenge, right? It's like, especially at scale. You can, it's, it's easy to do it when you're, when you're, when you're in a room next to somebody, but you can't, once you start. At a scale that's like that's not possible at all, it becomes harder, right? That's
0: why that intuitive design is so critical. And one of the things you said earlier that, that really caught my attention was that you started this after another startup failed. And I know a lot of people are very scared of the word failure, and some people are actually you know, very proud of the word failure. And I liked how comfortable you were with it. Could you tell me a little bit about that earlier startup and how you knew that it was failing and what, what, what did failure mean to you in that context?
1: It was failing because we ran out of money. (laughs) That'll do it. (laughs) I actually wrote a post mortem on this that you could actually link to afterwards, called "Why Vitoto V I T O T O Failed," and there was a few key reasons. Like, like the team was one, but it wasn't that the team was bad. It was just that the team was not right for the company and for the product and the stage. And the team also was not right for the budget that we had. And so it was kind of like. Uh, it was it was it was a lot of naivety on my side of basically not understanding the complexity length time and cost of like building a product building software everything moves slow, and then especially also just like not building something like off a spec defining a spec out of nothing and then iterating and iterating and iterating iterating and basically one of the things that I learned and and, and kind of so the team that I had then were two co-founders who were kind of, you know, banking, Microsoft, Oracle backgrounds. So like super enterprise guys, right? And they're really smart, you know, salesman at Microsoft and engineering lead at like Deutsche Bank kind of guys, but they they weren't used to the speed of startups. They also weren't used to the constant change. Like they were used to a much more structured, like the process is almost already being defined for you and you're kind of coming in and, and things move at that pace. And then, and then also it was a lack of, it was naivety around understanding how fundraising worked as well in venture capital. And so the product that we were building was a consumer product and it was a product that was not going to make money for a long time without a lot of funding, right? And understanding what state a product or a company needed to be in and what kind of metrics that you know, we, needed to, we needed to have and, and what, what kind of data we needed to have to be impressive to investors, was something that I didn't understand. And so that kind of affected how I, like basically I kind of budgeted. So, okay, we're gonna build an MVP and then we're gonna get some users on and then we're gonna go and raise like a seed round. But the problem was I didn't realize that like, once you built an MVP, that was kind of designed largely out of your own mind. And and actually another thing we didn't do was we probably didn't do enough like pre-development user testing. And, like, kind of like wireframe or mock up testing. But we built the MVP. There was a lot of usability issues with it, which affected our ability to retain users. And without any retention of users, we weren't able to get any investment because our data was horrible. And so we kind of had only budgeted for the MVP. We couldn't make any of the iterations that we needed to make once we actually had, if we had now, we actually had a lot of really good feedback that probably would have made the product much better. Kind of on 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 Process Street, it was it, when I was budgeting everything. It wasn't about like, okay, I'm going to budget for the MVP. It's like I'm going to budget for much further than that because you need a lot of iteration after the MVP comes out to actually optimize the product. To and like, unless maybe you're really ex- you're a really experienced product like person, right? Like you've done this before, or you come from a company where you've actually got that experience going through the whole cycle of like from nothing to building a successful product, and you kind of are probably able to escape a lot of the mistakes or make better kind of judgments initially to me like that wasn't my background or experience so to me it was like okay the way that we're going to make a good product is not by my brain it's by listening to the users but to do that it takes more time because you need time to build and then collect the data and then iterate and then collect the data and iterate which means you need to keep keep that into mind into your budget and the the idea was to get the product to a point that we had some some, you know, we had like some retention numbers, we had some traction, we had some companies paying and the product was at a point where, you know, it wasn't a product market fit, but at least there was positive data indicating that this thing is, is, is being used. It's being, you know, there are companies that are using it every day in their business. There are big companies that are using it, if not just small teams inside big companies and that like every month over month, as we, as we improve the product, all of our cohorts our data is getting better, right? Like our retention numbers are getting better, our conversion numbers are getting better. And as we can show that constant improvement and we actually have that data to show, that's when we go out to raise money, not kind of like, hey, we have this idea that we think is going to be awesome, fund us because, you know, it's going it's to be awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, you have to have a lot of confidence
0: to, to dive in and, uh, and just build something like that in order to make it possible. And I noticed you also, you shifted then from a B2C uh, orientation to a B2B orientation.
1: Yeah. So actually my, most of my background is in B2B. When I was doing media buying, I was selling B2C, but it was kind of different because it was arbitrage. It wasn't really product creation, right? Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah. So like we were doing a lot of, a lot of lead generation. So essentially just like buying ads on Facebook or on apps on phones. And sending people to a, 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 lead, a lead form that basically says for different products. So auto insurance would be a big one, mortgage, like mortgage refinancing, credit cards. And basically, you essentially just send someone to a form and you're like, you know, are you interested in learning about this credit card with this rate? Or are you interested in getting, you know, saving up to 50% on your auto insurance or whatever, right? And then, and then basically someone would submit that form and then you kind of just like sell that lead out. And so you, we'd sell them to Geico or to Wells Fargo, and and you'd almost sell the lead sometimes to multiple to multiple institutions as well. And that's pretty much the model. And so you kind of someone would fill out the form, and you'd ask them questions related to the to the lead. So if it's like a, if, it, if it's a mortgage refinancing form, which is kind of like a, a bigger form, it might say you know where do you live, what's your what's your house value, what's your what's your credit rating, what's your, what's your debt or something like that. Kind of of like some qualifying questions that help to grade the lead about does this, you know, is this person like, you know, bankrupt and probably not eligible for any kind of refinancing or is this person like a, like a legitimate kind of prospect for this product. And then that would kind of grade the amount that they paid or if they even paid you at all for the lead. Right. And yeah, that's pretty much what we do.
0: So is that what you were doing before this last business or is, was that something you followed up with?
1: So I kind of ran that company for about four years and it was still running while I went through the last startup, but it was pretty systemized by that point. So it wasn't, I was kind of, I, I, I used a money company to fund the startup and I was kind of running that company five hours a week or 10 hours a week and then working on the startup the rest of the time. And also kind of just like, crossing over some resources from the companies as well. Interesting. So I, I imagine some of the some of the systemization that
0: you did for that company might have inspired some of what's going on with Process Street.
1: Well that was the company that like that gave me the idea for Process Street. That was where I kind of wanted Process Street, right? Oh really?
0: Okay. So how were you yeah. systemizing things before Process Street was around?
1: I mean I tried everything, right? Like that's kind of that's kind of where I got the the idea and and I guess some of the product experience for Process Street was for four years I was running that company it was a it was a distributed team and so everything was run on SaaS and like through that time I went through you know every project management product all the different smart sheets and Google Doc products and all the, like a number of different CRMs all the different ad management products media buying products landing page products all the marketing automation products and so I kind of like had gone through testing a lot of these different things and. I think at, the, at, at that time, you know, it was just a mess. It was just like this combination of like Trello and Asana and Google Docs and Dropbox and just stuff everywhere. But it was like, it was still going, right? It was like there were people managing it all and and it was still going. But it was to me, it was kind of like a, like it was an unorganized, organized mess, right? Like,
0: <laughs> No, I, I completely understand. And I... I've worked with a lot of people, and I know a lot of people who are in exactly that position right now. With you know, all of these different resources, and every six months, it's another set because there's always something new coming out.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it was like it was kind of like a constant evolution of testing and playing with different things. Yeah, I mean, like a lot of the products I don't even use. I kind of would. I, I go in and I kind of like I set them up, and then I and then I step back. Right. And so I'm not using it on a day-to-day basis, but, like, I'm the one that's actually kind of building the system initially and then kind of handing it off. That makes sense. That's actually, that's actually a lot of what I do.
0: I was, I was actually going to ask you, what your uh, what, what does your daily routine look like nowadays?
1: I mean, it's something that's kind of, like, just, just being built. I mean, generally, I'm, like, because I, I have a remote team, so I'm generally doing, like, probably four hours a day of just... Catching up with my team, like doing team calls, or just chatting with my team, or like reviewing like the the stuff that I have in my need to review tasks list from the different teams. So I manage like the or mainly I manage the marketing team, which is like eight people or something. And so so it's like basically me I manage the marketing team and like one operations person, and then Cameron, who's my co-founder and the CTO, manages the engineering team. And so I kind of spend half my day doing that. I also do most of the sales and customer success for for the larger customers. And so I probably spend another two two hours a day on just the phone, um, just talking to customers. And then have like two days a week that I kind of block off and try and do not, not, not phone calls and try and just do focus work, which basically means just answering all the emails. You know, I, I, manage, I handle our investors and handle all of our accountants and lawyers and stuff. And so, yeah, so I kind of do that. And then I also, when I have time, try to try to run at least like one test a week, but generally try and do more than that. So just just trying to kind of build, build a bit of a, a testing culture in the company and kind of trying to be the one that, that does that. And so I'll do, you know, I might go in and I might change up something in like our automated email follow-up or I might change up a landing page or I might change up... An opt in form somewhere, or I might change up some some text in some of the, the follow ups or the in app messages or something, and just kind of trying to run, or like, or I'll, or, or I'll set an A B test, right, on like different things, and just kind of just trying to implement more tests. Actually, I kind of got this from Sean Ellis, who runs growthhackers.com. Oh, yes. He has a really good video about like building a testing process or, or building like a testing culture, which is kind of like building a testing process in your company. Even when you like, it's difficult when you're in build mode to test as well, right? Because you're always like, ah, oh, should I test this thing or should I build this thing? Like, and, and and I think that you should always be focused on building. But I think if you can just kind of section off a few hours a week and run a little test, and everybody does that, at the same time you're optimizing all these different parts of your business, and, and it kind of results in like it can in these kind of big profitability shifts after you've done that for a couple of years, right? Absolutely.
0: I, I, what uh, what kind of tools or technologies do you use to support your testing processes?
1: Right now, I've been focused on doing tests that don't require engineering time. Um, and I've been trying to kind of get, get, get a few people on the marketing team to kind of do that. And so we have, we use Intercom, we use SumoMe, and we use MailChimp. And and so all those three tools have built in A B testing. So for Intercom, we can we can test messages that are going out to different users. Like when somebody views like the billing tab or something like that, we can like pop a message up and we can test the messaging. And then we can kind of track like does that message increase conversions to paid? Right. And we can test that against it. And then and, and intercom has that built in completely. And then we and then sumo me, you can do things like test, you know, your blog pop-up scroll up boxes and pop up boxes for capturing emails. And so we test that and MailChimp, we test things like subject lines and time sent and stuff like that. So we're trying to test things that that are, that are really quick to implement and don't take more than sometimes even like a few minutes to just test a different subject line. Right. But just trying to get in that habit of like testing things. And then we also run tests around like, like a lot of the time you don't need technology to run a test. If you know like what the conversion rate was beforehand, you don't need any type of A/B testing tool. Like, if, like, okay, in the month of February, my landing page converted at 10% with this headline, and then on, on, on March 1st, I changed the landing page to headline B, and then I go, okay, so my conversion rate went from 5% to 8% in the month of March. I don't need an I don't need any technology to know that that was a successful test, right? Um, as long as you just track like what the what the data was before and what the data was afterwards. And so we basically keep a Trello board called growth. And one thing that happens when you start using like a bunch of different SaaS products, like, you know, using your marketing automation and your CRM and your reporting and your like multiple marketing automation, analytics tools, billing tools, like Stripe and blah, blah, blah. Like what happens is it becomes difficult to track like who's turning knobs on all of those different SaaS products. So, you know, when people make changes to stuff, like that's affecting things, right? You change a subject line somewhere in a follow-up email or whatever, like that's a, that's, a, that's a change that happened. And generally in those products, like, you know, if you go into Mandrill and you go and change like the template of the invitation email that goes out or something, that's another one that we do tests on as well there's no, it's not, that's not tracked anywhere. Like they don't keep in, they don't keep some type of like versioning of like those email templates. It's not recorded who made that change or whatever. There's no data that, that that change happened. Like maybe if you're say BCCing like an email account somewhere with every email, you could go in and see that change. But like it becomes difficult to track with this, like, yeah, like Moz and Ahrefs. So we basically uh, keep a Trello board that's called growth. And that basically anytime you turn a knob somewhere, You're supposed to create a card and put in like a screenshot and put in like what you changed and what you changed. And while this is, it's not necessarily that useful right now, but it's going to be very interesting in my opinion to go back and kind of pull out the data from the Trello board and go, okay, when were these cards created? Okay. What cards Like, go back and look at like, like if I go back and look at like my historical cohorts for six months and I say, okay, or three months and I go, okay, you know, these were changes that were made in February and there was a big uptake in, you know, this this particular uh, metric in, in February, I can go back and not just look at, you know, what code we pushed, which is, you know, could will be a big source of the changes that were, that, uh, that were made, but then also what we changed in all the surrounding products. And I can kind of pull up all the cards from Trello and say, look, we'd made these optimizations in MailChimp, these optimizations in Mandrill, these optimizations in Intercom. And there was probably some correlation between those optimizations and like that number there. It's not, it's not perfect, but like, at least it gives you a kind of change log of like what's happening in all the surrounding SaaS products that are being that that are that are still affecting like users, right? Yeah, and when you
0: have a complex ecosystem like that, I mean, it, there there are you're basically doing multivariate testing constantly, but without without the the accuracy of knowing exactly what's changed from from moment to moment. Yeah,
1: and a lot, right? Like you're testing like like twenty different things at once all the time. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. That that's that's incredibly complex. So at that point, a lot of it becomes more intuitive than, uh, than technical, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, you can, you can kind of look at like, like the, the sub metrics, I guess. So, you know, you can look at the open rate of an email, right. And, or the click-through rate of an email. And like it it might be difficult to kind of really map back that, that the the change in the open rate of that email to like the conversion rates and then what the actual impact was. But, if you kind of open up a month and you say, hey, look, we had these 50% increase in conversion rates. And then you go and you go, oh, in that month, we ran these eight tests that increased the open rates of 300% of all these emails that are related to the business features. Like I can then kind of merge some of that data together. I mean, in, like, qualitatively, right? And say, okay, look, if 300 people saw emails related to the business features that month, you know and we got an extra 50 customers or whatever there was probably some kind of correlation between like the exposure to that to that content and the conversion rate and it, you know assuming like other other things other things are static and so at least it gives you it gives you a bit more insight and the main problem that i that i had though is that like without tracking every time someone turns one of those knobs like you're blind right you don't know what happened at all like in all those apps like you know what's been going on and it's like all this kind of like un- untracked <laughs> <laughs> Untrack stuff that's happening everywhere and with the remote team and everything right you know like you change that like last month oh, okay like <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine it, it it
0: seems like it takes a lot of energy to keep on top of all of that what how do you keep yourself motivated for all of this
1: i don't know my life's pretty chill it's like you know i work a lot and it's like stressful being like running a startup and like for example it wasn't chill through through fundraising, like through angel Pattern fundraising although that was still like so we went through we went through AngelPad, which is like the number two accelerator after Y Combinator. No, that that's a very challenging process. I know, I've 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 heard a yeah, lot. Yeah, that that. that that was super intense. And actually, I think AngelPad is AngelPad. I think is the most intense one because like Y Combinator is kind of like more hands off per se. Like it's a bigger batch, and you kind of come in once or twice a week, and you do a couple of sessions. But like AngelPad, you have like Tomas, who's the guy that runs it, just yelling at you all day. Like, <laughs> and you, you're in there like from like nine a.m. to ten p.m. every day. And you just get yelled at. It. I like, ah. <laughs> Like it's really good, right? Because like you're getting pushed super hard and and, and you move really fast um, and you're getting like a lot of really fast feedback on like everything that you're doing. And so it's a really good program, but it's really intense. And so we went through that, and then we went through fundraising, which is which was really intense because you're kind of like fundraising itself is, a, is, is almost a full-time job. It is a full-time job. If you're, doing, if you're doing three or four meetings a day and you've got to travel to those meetings and then you have to prepare for those meetings, research all the people, take notes afterwards, create follow-ups, run reports for the investors, send that data to the investors, and you have to do that for like four meetings a day, that's like a full-time job plus you have to run your company at the same time. So then that becomes, that becomes pretty intense. But now, now I still work, you know, 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, but I work from home mostly. Me and my co-founder live together. And so we mostly just, like, we mostly just are at home. We, everyone else is remote. And like, I like it, right? Like I get to wake up, I get to kind of choose my own hours. I kind of can just walk around and talk to my team on my phone, wherever I am and kind of manage it all. And I mean, I do, I do what I like my, I like everyone I work with. Am I constantly doing different things that are, that are like my, my job, like constantly changes and evolves, which means I don't get bored and I don't kind of report to anybody. So (laughs) it motivates me in and of itself, right? Like I'm not depressed going to work. I'm pretty happy.
0: It sounds like a very custom designed life. Did you have any, any like role models that were, uh, were motivational to you or helped you develop that, what you put together for yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, like there, there's been different people through through different parts of my life. I mean, in in I'm from Australia and growing up in Australia, like i I've kind, of, kind of always been interested in technology and stuff like that. But growing up in Australia, it's not Silicon Valley, but so but we so a lot of the 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 news that we got, especially when I was growing up, was just mostly about the really big technology companies. You know, not a lot about the startups until they got to a point that they were public or something, right? But so a lot of my a lot of my the people that I looked up to were like you know, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and the Google founders and, and then Zuckerberg as he came in. Because those were, I didn't really like get exposure to a lot of the kind of the not ginormous founders, you know. But then a lot of a lot like since I've kind of gone to Silicon Valley and stuff, I've started to like a lot of the the other SaaS founders. And and then like four hour work week Tim that was a big influence on enabling basically a look like remote or location independent type of lifestyle. And more just like giving me like opening my eyes to like the possibilities of doing that and 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 kind of different methods and exposing me to other people and other companies that were kind of operating that way. And so I think that's kind of a good a good combination. But I don't know if it's gonna stay like this. And it probably won't. So we need to we need to make a decision based on as we grow as to if we're gonna stay completely remote or or distributed. And more than more than likely we'll need to set up an office at least for sales and cause success once we do an A round. And so like that office is going to be in the US, probably in San Francisco or potentially somewhere else. And that will probably change my my lifestyle a little bit. <laughs> are you
0: located in San Francisco now? No, New York. Ah. Uh-huh. One of the things you mentioned earlier was uh, that previous company the team was was kind of an issue. How did you find your co-founder? How did you find your team? And how are you making sure that that's, that's less of an issue now than it was before?
1: I found my co-founder in a in a hostel in Buenos Aires
0: (laughs) everybody go to Buenos Aires and look in the hostels you'll find co-founders
1: there you go but it wasn't like that was you know he was probably the ninth ninth person or something that I'd pitched in kind of like a six-month period and so it wasn't like pitched seriously but I'd probably talked to a lot more people so it wasn't like a chance encounter I mean that was but it wasn't because like I was pitching everybody if that makes sense, right? It's like, you, you call 100 people, you get one sale, you're not lucky. Like, you call 100 people, right? <laughs> Good point. And you probably call another 100, you probably call another 100 people, you're probably going to get another sale. It's not, if you call one person and you get a sale, maybe you're lucky. But yeah, so, so that's kind of how I found Cameron. And I, think, and I think the main thing is, you know, just, just to know what you're looking for. And so for me, I, was, I wasn't just looking for somebody who had the technical skill set. But for me, it was more about actually finding somebody who was well, obviously the technical skill set's like a, you know the minimum requirement for the role, right? It's like you can't be a doctor without a doctor's degree. Like it's just like that's the beginning, and then you did decide like you know, the, the the type of doctor that you need for that role, right? And so to me, it was actually more about somebody who was like in the right life situation to be like totally down for the cause, to to do a startup in like a pretty lean kind of fashion right so like flexible on location on money for the next 2 years no commitments no mortgage no like just pretty much like down for the down for the journey and kind of willing to put that as the the the, the forefront of their priorities for the next few years and i think that's i think that you you like i think for first time founders or at least like first time successful founders that don't have a lot of capital, that don't have a lot of connections. I think that's almost the most important priority because it's, it's not about hitting it out of the park straight away. It is once you're a second time founder and you get given a a million or $2 million check based off your pitch deck uh, without a line of of code being written, which is, which is really common once you're a second, a multi-time founder. But for the first time it's about survival and it's about, not having to go back to your job, so that you basically don't have any more time to code, right? <laughs> like it's just about giving your giving yourself like as many hours as possible to write code, to talk to customers, and to run tests. And I think that you know, getting yourself in a situation like that, if you're if you're looking at starting a, a startup, you know, stripping down all your expenses, not taking salaries, and the idea is you're not going to do that forever, but you just need. to The thing is, you don't know when you're going to hit that kind of product market fit, and probably whatever you think is right, if you've never done it before, is wrong.
0: <laughs>
1: like if you've done it before, sure, okay, you, you, like you, you probably know what you're doing, or at least you have a bit more insight. But if you've never done it before, whatever you think, like however easy it's going to be, it's probably going to be ten times harder. So whatever you think that your budget is, it's probably going to be five times more, or two times more, or whatever. And if it's not, great, awesome. If things go better, faster for you, cool. Then you can raise money faster. You can take a salary faster. You can get revenue faster. And then all that stops. But you need to be prepared, right? That like, it might not go that way. And the only thing when you're a two-person startup where you're just like, you have almost no expenses, just except like keeping yourselves alive and you're a smart, motivated guy. It's like the only reason why you're not going to succeed is if you give up. You can do it. You can go live on people's couches. You can just hustle, hustle, hustle. If you know how to program, you can program for 10 hours and make a little bit of money and go do something else. Like if you if you have the skill set to like run a startup, right? Which is you know, you're probably educated at some level, you probably understand technology at some level. You you have the ability to to make stuff happen. And and I think that people basically either they come from really high-paying jobs and they go to try and start a startup and it becomes difficult for them because like their lifestyle gets hit significantly and they're not getting that income anymore, or they kind of give themselves this window where they're like, you know, I have this budget and it's six months. And then if I don't hit it in six months, I'm going to go back to my job. You're probably going to fail if you give yourself that window, right? Because you're probably not going to hit it in that six month period. And you're probably not going to hit it within your budget. And then everything's going to collapse, right? Like, and then you may as well just not even do it. You may as well just like spend that money on a holiday or something. Although it can be, it can be a good learning experience for you.
0: That's really good advice. I like that, because I think a lot of people go into this with an unrealistic expectation, especially if they're coming from a background where they're used to the the like the silver handcuffs of the comfortable salary. If you have five more minutes, I would love to ask you a little bit more about the viral marketing that
1: goes into Process Street. So from the marketing side, we don't really do any viral marketing, I guess. We have some some, some growth engines in the product. That was what I meant, actually.
0: I think the the thing that I that caught my attention with uh, Process Street was the ability to share checklists, and that brings people mm-hmm. in as potential as potential users. Well, that was something that we that yeah. You so there's
1: in. a few things, and we want to we want to build more. So you know you can make your templates public. Um, you can have public templates, which is kind of like a, a Zapier, Shed, Zap, or Word template. Um, so make those public. You can share them with people. They rank on Google. They're bringing traffic. So that's been great. We want to scale that. You can also, you can have a team to work around and collaborate around checklists. So that's kind of like an inbuilt thing. But another one that we have is we actually have a feature called guests. And so you can actually bring guests into individual processes. So say your process is requirements gathering for a new client. So you're like a web design agency. And every time like a, a client comes to you and they're like, you know, I need a new website. Okay, what kind of website do you want? What kind of technology do you need? What, do you, what kind of pages do you need? What kind of do you need logo designed? Or is just, just the website, content created, blah, blah, blah. And so you can kind of assign the client a checklist of stuff that they need to submit to you before you can get going on their website. And so that's been a pretty good way of getting people in. And we have people that you know automatically When somebody purchases something or when a trigger hits their CRM, automatically send out a kind of checklist to the client with a bunch of stuff that the client needs to do. And then they can kind of observe all the clients as they're waiting for them to complete those checklists, jump in, pull out the files, communicate with them, that kind of stuff. So that's been a really good one. And then one of the next ones we want to do is like have the ability to share the checklists just by a link. So you can run the checklist and then grab the link and send it out. And then anybody can complete it as essentially like an anonymous user without needing to actually create create a prostrate account. That seems like a very effective strategy. And I know you're doing some media outreach as well, right? Yeah, we're actually we're doing a podcast ourselves, So I've been recording episodes for that. And then I do yeah interviews and, and other kind of opportunities for content. Once you get that out,
0: you have to send me the link to that so that I can add it to the show notes.
1: Yeah, it's called it's called business systems explored. And it's actually so it's like a podcast about each episode is going to be kind of breaking down like a particular business system. So we have Stelly, who's the founder of a CRM called Close IO, talking about how to be like an outbound B2B sales system. And we have one of our investors who's a CTO of been a CTO of a couple of startups talking about how to how to build like an engineering recruitment system to to hire developers. And so kind of like talking about different different systems, like different marketing systems, stuff like that. Podcasting would be one of, like we have an episode on podcasting, an episode on like content marketing, stuff like that. Cool. It sounds like something I'm going to enjoy listening to too. So I'll be
0: looking for that too. And thank you so much for spending some time with us today, Vinay. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit hacktheprocess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening.